Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. We are in the book of Hebrews, and last week we finished chapter 4, sort of as we were running toward the end of chapter 4 because you guys were chasing so many bunnies, I said we'd actually back up. And so I want to pick it up in verse 411 and then we'll get a run on into chapter 5. So 411, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, of course, we're talking about the generation that fell in the wilderness due to the sin of the spies. When they came back and the spies sowed Fear in the camp, the Israelites said, we'll die if we go up there and we're not going to do that. Then God appeared in front of the camp and said to Moses, get out of the way. I will get rid of them all and I'll start over with you. Of course, Moses says, that's not a good idea, God. Your reputation will suffer. So God relents, but he, in that process, says that nobody in that generation except Joshua and Caleb will go into the land. Going into the land is being talked of in this case as entering into God's rest. When he says in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, what sort of disobedience then would he be talking about? Lack of trust. They didn't trust God to be able to do what he said he would do. That was the reason they didn't get to go in. Verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the part where I actually wanted to spend a few minutes. So sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. So what are we talking about there? It specifically talks about the Word of God dividing. Where does the Word of God divide? The Word of God divides starting in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and He divided the light from the darkness. God said, let there be seas and land, and He divided the seas from the dry land. God in the creation spends the first chapter of Genesis dividing things, and the mechanism that he uses to divide things is his word. God speaks, and things are divided. So the first place we see the word of God causing division is in Genesis 1. Now, how would that then translate with respect to an individual? This is all taking part, I will suggest, within each of us. Look what we got here. You got soul, spirit, and then joints and marrow. I will gently suggest that we're talking body, soul, and spirit there. In what sense then does the Word of God divide body, soul, and spirit? I will suggest that a baby is all appetite. Baby does not have a lot of spiritual sophistication. Baby just, you know, wants what the baby wants. When it's hungry, it cries. When it's uncomfortable, it cries. 
when it's frightened it cries, when it's happy it gurgles. They rapidly develop a personality, but there isn't initially a whole lot of spiritual connection there. That develops over the years. So what you're doing is you are dividing the spiritual part of yourself from the clay. One of the things we've described, I haven't talked about this in a while, but it's probably a good time to talk about it for a minute. You've got the spirit, which connects to God. You've got the body, which connects to the ground. The soul is the connection between those two. So you have the body on one side that's trying to have its way. And the body is, again, appetite. Wants what it wants. It's hungry, it's thirsty, it you know, wants to do whatever it wants to do. Theoretically, the spirit should be connected to God. The soul in between is the battleground. Because the soul in between is what makes the decisions as to which direction you go in any specific circumstance. And so the body is pulling on the soul saying, you know, come on down here where it's fun. And let's satisfy our appetites. The spirit should also be pulling on the soul saying, focus up here. You have this constant tug of war between spiritual and physical. And what I will suggest that this passage is saying is the Word of God effects a separation so that the Spirit can, in fact, turn and cleave to God and can then come back and work with the soul to get the body into proper submission. Now, that isn't to say that the body is bad. It's not. The body is good. God created it. You need one. When you go through the resurrection, you're going to get another one. Nothing wrong with the body, except initially it is tied to the earth because it's made of the clay. So it needs to be trained, educated, brought into submission to the spirit and the soul so that it performs the function it was designed to perform instead of driving the train and dragging everybody down to the earth. One of the things that happens a lot, especially in the Sunday church, I, I suspect Islam is probably this way too, although I'm, I'm not an expert there, is the flesh is regarded as evil. And a lot of that comes from what I believe is a misreading of Paul. You, know, you get the idea that the flesh is this thing that must be mortified, to use a medieval word, and it, it's not. It's simply the place where we all start. As I said to begin with, a baby newly issued is all appetite. He's all flesh. And it's a process then of education and spiritual maturation that by the end of his life, he has a proper balance and, and one hopes that the flesh is then in proper relationship to the soul and the spirit and the whole being is doing what God wants it to do. What I think the author of Hebrews, who I think is Paul, is saying here is the function of the word is to affect the separation. And then uh, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This reminds me of the runaway bunny psalm, which is Psalm 139, Psalm 139 verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What Hebrews is saying is something very similar to what David is saying in Psalm 139. There is no getting out of the game. Lots of people today say, I, I just don't care about this stuff, and I'm, I'm out of the game. I'm not going to play that game. Well, what both David and Paul are saying is, sorry, you can't get out of the game. Because at the end, you're going to have to give an account of what you have done with what you have been given. So now we're going to switch subject. What we've talked about up until here is we've talked about Yeshua being higher than the angels. We've also talked about Yeshua as compared to Moses. Whereas Moses is the servant and Yeshua is the heir. We're talking about him being higher than the angels and we're talking about him also being the son and heir. Now we're going to change subjects and we're going to talk about him being the high priest. So you have a progression here. Starts off with angels and Yeshua is higher than that. Then it comes down to humans and Yeshua is the heir to God's kingdom. And as such, we, his brothers, are also heirs. And now we're going to talk about Yeshua as the high priest. So now we're all the way down to verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what he's doing now is he's making a transition. Yeshua is one of us. And one of the things that said earlier on in Hebrews is Yeshua went through all of the temptations we go through. The purpose of him doing that is so that he would have a visceral understanding of how difficult it is to be human. And so that when he then judges us, he will judge us with understanding and compassion as opposed to strict justice. So now we're sort of going back to that, but we're now going to pop him up and put him in the office of a high priest. Chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. There's two things being said here, and it isn't being said very well, or at least very clearly in my estimation. So the first thing is a high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. His job is to represent men to God and vice versa. He is also to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Well, gifts are different than sacrifices for sin. I find the punctuation here awkward. A priest acts before God on behalf of men. He offers gifts because most of the sacrifices have nothing to do with sin. There are peace offerings and thank offerings and burnt offerings and all that kind of stuff. So he does that. He also offers sacrifices for sin. Verse 2, 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And again, this is talking about a human priest. And the idea of a human priest is that being a man himself and being beset by weakness himself, he's able to be gentle with the people around him because he has the same problems. Not necessarily the same in detail, but the same in kind. And of course, he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. What he's popping up here is the idea that priesthood is hereditary. And it is something that God chooses. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are, how well qualified you are, how well you know the Torah, how well you can wield a knife. None of that matters if you're not a son of Aaron, you can't be a priest. Sorry. Verse 5. So also... Messiah did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who sent him. He's going to quote from Psalm 2, followed by Psalm 110. And the rest of this is going to be a riff on Psalm 110. Pick it up in verse 5 again. So also Messiah did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, comma, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Two things being said about the Messiah. From Psalm 2, God is saying to the Messiah, you are my son, because I begot you. I am your father. He is begotten. Though for those of you who grew up in a liturgical church, one of the things in the Nicene Creed is that it specifically says that he is begotten, not made. Which is to say, God didn't you know, rustle up some clay and pack it together and make another like Adam. What he did is he begat Yeshua as a father. Verse 6 says then, also in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and that's Psalm 110. So what God is saying to the Messiah then is, you are my son, you are also a priest. But notice it's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and it's a different order of priesthood than the order of Aaron. Part of this riff is going to be an exposition that he is, in fact, not an Aaronic priest. And it's going to talk about what that means. So verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Yeshua offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So Yeshua prayed to God, who was able to save him from death, and his prayers were heard. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. God did in fact hear his prayers, but God said, I understand your prayer, but you have to go through with this. And in that, Yeshua learned obedience. Verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There is apparently something about his obedience and death that leads to God being able to declare that he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and I don't know what that is. The sense of the grammar is his being made a priest follows his obedience and death. The question was, reacting off of verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
I think that's an audience-specific thing. The nature of your question is, are only those who obey him saved? I think that will lead you into a Greek logic trap. The way I see it, it is specific to this group that he's addressing. He's addressing a group of Jewish believers. So we're talking here people who are in the club. I don't see this necessarily as applying to all humanity. So 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So what he's clearly saying to him here is, hey, the fact that I'm having to write you this letter is an indication that you're sort of going off the rails somewhere. And furthermore, you're not thinking in the way that somebody mature in Scripture ought to be thinking. The questions you're asking are too basic. On to chapter 6, the same thought. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Messiah and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So what he's saying is, hey guys, you already know this stuff. You know about uh, washing, you know, taking a mikvah. You know about the laying on of hands, passing on a spirit. You know about the resurrection of the dead. You know about eternal judgment. You know about faith. Again, this is why I say this is audience specific because he will write to Gentiles and he will explain a lot of this stuff because they don't understand it. He's assuming that this audience does understand all this stuff, that they're asking him dumb questions. As the guy in Louisiana said, they're stuck on stupid. So verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. My reading of this is that it is sort of a specific against Calvinism. I mean, he doesn't intend it as a specific against Calvinism because Calvin hadn't been born for 1,700 years at that point. But what he's saying is, if you've come in you have experienced the Holy Spirit, you understand God, you've been walking with Him, and then you turn and walk away, then there's no hope for you. This goes back to my perspective on Calvinism. I am a believer that you choose whether or not you are going to come into the kingdom of God. It's a free choice. And I also believe that it is possible, if you want, to turn around and walk out. Calvinism would say that that's not possible. A Calvinist would say that God makes you an offer that you can't refuse. You really had no meaningful choice in coming in. And then once you're in, he holds you there and you have no possibility of getting out. Well, if you can come in of your own free will, then you must be able to leave of your own free will. 
And so what I think he's saying here is, if you have once come into the kingdom of God, experienced the Holy Spirit, basically in the Baptist sense have become saved, and you then go out, then there's no hope for you. One of the problems with the United States, and I don't know who said this, but it probably C.S. Lewis because he said everything. Chesterton would probably work too. Americans have been inoculated with a weak form of Christianity so that they are immune to the real thing. There are lots and lots of people out there who think they know what the Bible says because they've heard Bible sound bites forever. They do Christmas, they know Easter, they know the Christmas story and all that kind of stuff. Probably grew up as kids in the church, many of them. You know, got sent off to Sunday school. So they know the stories and all that kind of stuff. But what they haven't been confronted with is the power of God. And because they now have been inoculated against it, when the power of God shows up, there's a very good chance that they won't accept. A vaccine is where you take a weak or, or dead virus and you inject somebody with it so that your antibodies can build up. They build up antibodies to Christianity. When they are finally confronted with a real thing, they're immune. That's another way to say, I think, what's being said here in Hebrews. Onward. Verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So again, he's just giving an agricultural metaphor for what he just said about those who have turned away from God. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Having upbraided them a little bit, he now turns back to complimenting them and praising their works. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That basically is by way of bucking them up. This is an interlude, and we'll pick up Melchizedek again in chapter 7. So let's finish the chapter. 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. God made a promise to Abraham. It is typical when someone makes a promise to swear on something. So it says in the Torah that you should swear on the name of God. God, however, doesn't have anything outside of himself or greater than himself on which he can swear. Such a thing does not exist. So what he did was he swore on his own name. Verse 19. 
We have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yeshua is the anchor because he is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek and because he has entered the holy place in heaven of which the earthly tabernacle is a copy. That, by the way, is going to be a key point as we go through the rest of the study about Melchizedek. You remember back in Exodus when Moses goes up the mountain and he spends 40 days up there. This is after the unfortunate incident with the golden calf. He goes up for 40 days. While he's up there, we have the unfortunate incident with the golden calf. He comes back down. He spends some time in the tent of meeting, pleading for Israel. At the end of that period, he goes back up for another 40 days. When he comes down the second time, he has the plans for the Mishkan, the tabernacle. It is my personal belief that the tablets of stone, remember, were a metaphor for hearts of stone. So when Israel said, basically to God, but to Moses, stop, if we hear any more of the voice of God, we will die. Moses, you go up and talk to him and tell us what he said and come back down and we'll listen to you. That's when tablets of stone became decreed, because... Tablets of stone are a metaphor for hearts of stone. The idea of Israel standing at the foot of Sinai was that God was going to speak his word into their hearts, and that was going to be it. They would not. So then we have tablets of stone, as I say, as a metaphor for hearts of stone. Coming back down, we have the problem of the golden calf. The problem of the golden calf is the thing that necessitates the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is a device that allows a holy God to live in the midst of a sinful people without destroying them. So you've got two trips up the mountain, if you will. Trip one, we get the tablets of stone. That first set gets broken. Goes up again, gets a second set of tablets, but he also in that process gets the pattern for the tabernacle. Comes back down and starts to build the tabernacle. And his specific instructions from God is you are to build the tabernacle according to the pattern of the one you saw in heaven. So the earthly tabernacle is a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. And what the book of Hebrews is going to discuss is how Yeshua, as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, serves in that tabernacle, even though he is ineligible to serve in the one on earth. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed it. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What's being said here? Everybody in the Bible's got a genealogy. 
I mean, you got genealogies from Adam. You got genealogies of Esau. You got genealogies of Ishmael. You got genealogies of Messiah. You got genealogies of David. Everybody's got a genealogy. Except Melchizedek. Melchizedek does not have a genealogy in Scripture. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is keying off that element of distinction about Melchizedek. In other words, you name any other character in Scripture, and I can tell you what his parents were and, you know, trace him right on back to Adam. The point he's making here is this guy Melchizedek is really odd. Furthermore, he only appears twice in Scripture. He appears in Genesis, where he meets Abraham, as discussed here. He also appears again in Psalm 110. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying, all right, we got this guy that just sort of pops up. He's a priest. Abraham gives him tithes. And then we have in Psalm 110, God saying through David that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which the writer of Hebrews interprets as being messianic. So then what he's saying is, wait a minute, this guy Melchizedek, since he doesn't get born and he doesn't die, we could say that's a metaphor for eternal. He has no beginning of days and he has no end of days, at least not in Scripture. Neither his birth nor his death is mentioned. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, ah, in that case, he is eternal, with air quotes around him. And so then what he's saying is, since Yeshua is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, so is he. That's the argument that's being made here. So verse 3 again. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what he's doing is he's setting up that Melchizedek and Yeshua are priests of the same order, and they are eternal priests. Verse 4. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. These also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So what he's saying is Abraham is a big deal. I'm writing to Hebrews here. In the Hebrew lexicon, Abraham is a big deal. Yet Abraham gave tithes to this guy Melchizedek. Furthermore, we give tithes to the Levites. But the Levites, in a sense, gave tithes to Melchizedek because they are descendants of Abraham. You see the transitive nature there? Verse 6. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, that received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, 
paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Basically, he's saying that all of Abraham's descendants who are less great than Abraham himself, in other words, Abraham being the patriarch, is superior. So Abraham blesses his son because the superior blesses the inferior. So the blessing of Abraham is passed down from father to son, from superior to inferior. Therefore, everybody that descends from Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek because Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. Paul had to have written this. (laughs) Nobody else writes like that. I'm going to stop here and we'll pick it up at verse 11 next time. It's important to understand what's being set up here. We have a sequence that's been set up in the book. It starts off with angels. He demonstrates through messianic psalms that Yeshua is greater than the angels. Then we have set up through Psalm 8 that people are a little lower than the angels. Then we have Yeshua is one of us. He's our brother. But he's higher than the angels. And then we have Moses who delivers the Torah. And it says the Torah is reliable. It says if the Torah was reliable, how much more reliable then would be the things that the Son of God said. And so then we have the setting up that we're heirs along with him. And now we have it being set up that he's a high priest. We're doing this over a number of weeks, so it's easy to get lost in all of the Pauline stuff. But the logic that he is establishing here is step-by-step linear. Would somebody like closing prayer?